Coming up today, Natasha looks at two of the big problems with people returning to offices. Matt Reynolds examines how artificial snow is being used to save a glacier, and I explore the troubling rise of deepfake pornography videos. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Matt Burgess, and joining me today is Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Natasha Burnell. Hello. This was the week when Kevin Mayer, the CEO of TikTok in the US and ByteDance chief operating officer, said he would leave the company after just 100 days in the role. It comes at a time when ByteDance is looking for a buyer for TikTok in the US, following pressure from the Trump administration. A row erupted this week after the BBC said Rule Britannia and Land of Hope and Glory could be dropped from the last night of the proms in the wake of the recent Black Lives Matter protests. Boris Johnson said, I think it's time we stopped our cringing embarrassment about our history. But in fact, the decision was made to drop the lyrics because of social distancing rules. And it was finally the week when Africa was declared free from wild polio cases after Nigeria went from having more than half of the world's global cases to not having a single case identified in the last two years. That leaves only Afghanistan and Pakistan that are still to eradicate the disease. And if they do it, it'll only be the second time in history that humans have managed to eradicate a disease altogether. Matt, we've obviously been focusing on sort of coronavirus and um, the health situation around that over the last few months. But uh, that news this week from uh, Africa and being uh, sort of declared polio free, that seems like a pretty big deal, right? Yeah, it's really exciting. And it's a good bit of, um, you know, happy news in an otherwise quite depressing news cycle. So not too many years ago, Nigeria had, you know, 1,200, 1,600 cases of polio a year, and it was in a really, really bad place. But um, now I think that across the African continent, around 95% of children get vaccinated with a kind of nasal spray each year. The worry is in Afghanistan and Pakistan, some of these people are really, really hard to reach. So we expect that it might be a while before polio is eradicated altogether. But this is really, really positive, And it's certainly a step in the right direction. So it's a, you know, a happy story yeah which for 2020 seems uh, a bit of an outlier um so yeah good to hear about that um in terms of what we learned this week natasha um anything come across your radar well so last week james challenged us not to do things about animals so i kind of thought that who could be more inspiring than us and so i looked into the hashtag symbol and what I learned is that it's technically called an octothorpe which I didn't know. According to the Merriam-Webster dictionary the octo prefix refers to the eight points on the popular symbol but the thorpe remains a mystery. One theory has claimed that it comes from the old English word for village which is based on the idea that the symbol looks like a little village surrounded by eight fields. So yeah so like there's so much depth to think about when you think about a hashtag. The the village theory seems a little bit too convenient, right? I don't know. I mean, who's who's to know? Who who drew the first hashtag? Maybe it was someone who was thinking it takes a village. <laughs> I don't want to say it, but I had to say it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Matt Reynolds is like covering his face in disgust. It's and just, that's yeah. the end of the podcast. Join us next week. <laughs> 
Matt, um, save us from from this situation. Yeah, so another virus-themed fact for you. So obviously we've been thinking about one virus in particular over the last six months, but viruses are absolutely everywhere. And I found out that there are more individual viruses on Earth than there are stars in the universe. And to put a number to that, that is more than a quadrillion quadrillion viruses basically a quadrillion is 1000 trillion and on top of that a single liter of seawater contains 100 billion viruses and the most common type are viruses that infect bacteria so it's not just us that get viruses but actually the single largest group of organisms is actually viruses that infect bacteria so viruses there's a lot of them is my fact I probably shouldn't ask you how many zeros there are in a quadrillion quadrillion, should I? You know, I looked this up. So if a so so a billion is six nine zeros, so I guess a trillion is twelve zeros, and I guess that means a quadrillion is fifteen zeros. Um so it would be that times that again. Maybe a reader can write in and actually do the math because it's one of those, you know, ten to the power of something, and I've almost definitely got that wrong. It's a lot of zeros. So basically a lot of viruses out there. So, you know, be careful when you I don't know, drink seawater or something. Well, if you if you do know uh or want to do the maths and, and tell us how many zeros are in a quadrillion quadrillion, uh podcast at wired.co.uk. Um I know Natasha you just pointed out that James said that we shouldn't bring on animal facts to the podcast. Um however, I've got two animal facts this week. Um but my caveat is um that they came from Rob, uh, one of the listeners, uh who said that they're sort of a long time listener to the show and they wrote in uh, quite a long, very nice email about lots of different things that we've talked about recently from um from the stress caused by the pandemic and uh, discussion about sort of running that we had a few weeks ago um, and Rob who lives in Australia now but is from England uh, wrote in to say that um, the, well, the first one is about uh, killer whales so killer whales are actually part of the dolphin family uh, so Rob said why shouldn't we call them killer dolphins I mean I guess that's a fair point yeah uh, and then the second and <laughs> And then the second fact that I, I preferred, but is also slightly uh, horrifying, is that the Sydney funnel web spider, which is poisonous, and I googled it, and it looks a really sort of horrific spider, uh, can survive in water for up to 24 hours. Uh, and it does this by trapping air bubbles on the hairs around its abdomen. Um, so basically making itself be able to float, which is, uh, I mean, I guess it's innovative, but it's also quite um, not for me. <laughs> Yeah, it, that's a freaky looking spider and I would be terrified to see that floating in my bath. So no thank you, Rob. Especially if it was floating and still uh, alive and uh, sort of moving around. Yeah, um, we'll move on. Um, just before we get into the first story this week, want to remind you about uh, the new podcast from our colleagues at Wired US. Um, they've launched the uh, new podcast called Get Wired. And just like the Wired UK podcast, it's all about the future um, and news from tomorrow delivered you today delivered to you today uh, you can expect trustworthy journalism informed by decades of real understanding of technology um, new episodes of get wired drop every monday uh, listen and subscribe to get wired wherever you get your podcasts and of course please keep listening to wired uk podcast as well for um, a little bit more wired in your life natasha the first story this week is all about people returning to offices and how offices have prepared for um 
life in the post-COVID world, but there are still a couple of areas that are basically baffling people. Yeah, so this week is a bumper edition of what bad things can happen when we go back to work. So we took a closer look at what the return to work means for people who are based in offices more specifically. And what we found isn't pretty. Although employers have been kitting out their open plan offices with signage and making sure that people are sitting one plus metres apart, they haven't factored in two big things that could either kill us or make us incredibly inefficient. And for a lot of businesses, maybe that's the same sort of thing. The first is that people who work in high rise buildings could take hours to get up to their desks in really awkwardly slow lifts that are poorly designed to kind of keep that socially distancing um, in place. And the second is that once they get up to their offices eventually, they could be breathing stale, recycled air that comes straight from their colleagues' lungs, which poses a massive health risk. Yeah, it's it's really been a double whammy from you this week, Natasha, hasn't it? And yeah. it's really, I, I think it's vindicated my decision to uh, leave the office forever. Not forever, by the way. I will be back <laughs> eventually, but not be in the office at the moment because it seems like it's not a great place to be if you can help it. So before we get on to the stagnant air in the office themselves, uh, itself, yeah, if you work in a high-rise building, you're not going to go up 46 flights of stairs to get in. You've got to take the lift. That usually means in, in the normal times, cramming in with, I don't know, 20, 30, you know, a dozen other people. Presumably that's not going to happen now. How big are the risks for getting into a lift and, what, you know, how much does it have to change to make it safe? So much to unpick. I think I should start with a fact, which is that researchers have found that people aren't willing to climb up more than four flights of stairs. So you're absolutely right. The majority of, of places that are you know, offices that are based in really high rise buildings in London or in other big cities have a huge logistical nightmare ahead of them. So in the before times, you know, queues of people standing around waiting for elevators were a common sight in the lobbies of most buildings. You could have them, you know, anywhere from like PwC's 10 storey building in the embankment to like the mini shard, uh, which is where News UK is based, which is 17 storeys, or even in the Heron Tower, which is near Liverpool Street, which has 46 floors. So you'd see loads of people queuing in the lobby area and trying to get into lifts at key points during the day but in the age of coronavirus this waiting for lifts isn't just a mild inconvenience it's it's a massive massive problem uh, because basically if you if you think about the way things work you would have a system set in place even if you have the oldest ugliest most disgusting and decrepit lift system you would still have prepared so that about 12 percent of people who are working in any given office could arrive at their desks in a five minute window and that the entire population of a given office if they were all standing in a queue in the lobby could still get to their respective floors within about 40 minutes so more efficient lift systems that have been implemented since so in the last 10 20 years can cut that weight time in half and on paper it could mean that obviously if you have half of the people coming in um, after the coronavirus pandemic socially distancing rules it could make it a lot easier but that's not the case so since the coronavirus pandemic companies can't as you said Matt ram a dozen people in each elevator to speed up the time it takes to get from the lobby to high floors so bigger lifts can fit four people while still respecting social distancing so you probably would have seen loads of images of people looking at the corners um, uh, facing the wall rather than you know going normally um, into into a lift uh, but smaller cabs are restricted to two people or one in in some extreme scenarios so um even if companies figure out how they can stagger people from going in so they're thinking about flexible working where you don't have to arrive at nine you don't have to leave at five there's still no solution for the worst time of the day for lifts which is lunchtime lunchtime is 
probably not the time that I would initially think of being the most troubling for sort of lifts in an office. But I guess if you, you if you think about it a little bit more, it probably does make sense because everybody eats at around the same time. Um, is, is that the problem with lunchtime or, or yeah. what, what's what's the deal with it? That's right. Yes, it doesn't really matter what time you start. So if you started at seven or eight, you still want to take your lunch pretty much at the same time. So there's a two hour window and whatever expert you speak to um, on lifts will tell you the same thing. Everyone wants to have lunch at the same time and it means that you have people coming in and out of the building at the, at the same time in, the, in, the, in that space of time so it would it would take according to Julian Ollie, who's the director of vertical transportation at Arup which is a logistics company it would take people two and a half hours to get back to their desks if they all took their, their time between 12 and 2 and 50% of people were back so it's two and a half hours that it would take you to just go out and pop pop to prep for a sandwich, come back, you know, you, you couldn't get back in. You'd be, you'd be queuing uh, eternally. It'd be like the worst sort of experience. You'd be queuing around the corner, out on streets, not great. So basically, everyone who's trying to plan to go back to the office have to factor this in. And it's a uniquely tedious math problem. It kind of feels like GCSE, only worse in every possible way. So everyone has a different shape lobby, different sizes, different size ceilings. Everyone has different number of lifts. Each lift works at a different speed and it closes the doors at different speed as well. So therefore they have to calculate how long it would take from someone coming from the outside of a building to their floor. And that's basically a unique situation depending on how much percentage of people are also coming back to the office. So it's really boring and it's really tedious and you've got loads of people that are trying to figure this out for companies. So it's, it's, it's terrible because in the scenario of older buildings, for example, that have been adapted from being a cubicle office to an open plan office, you might be at 150% capacity, which skews the ratio of lift to office worker. This is all super nerdy. So you can have the situation at the moment with a lot of, um, a lot of buildings that they've modelled where you'd have a sort of airport style queuing system that goes from the street into the lobby kind of just going back and forth um, backtracking etc to get to the lift area to stop people and stall them um, so that they don't have a huge blockage in the smallest area of a lobby which is where the lifts are placed and one office in london a hundred bishop's gate um, is one that you've looked at a little bit Um, they've sort of resorted to a bit of a drastic solution right (laughs) Yeah, so they didn't really know what to do, um, and it was it was all a bit a bit much. So what what they tried to do was uh, they sort of looked at their lobby. They put a load of stickers down on the floor, a lot of signs, but they also uh, looked at the actual cabs, which is the the lift space, uh, the interior of it, and they decided that rather than rely on people stepping on stickers and doing the right thing, they would limit physically limit the amount of people that could get into a lift by putting a perspex divider in the middle. So you can only really fit two people in, and no one would disobey the rules so so that's that's um that's the interesting side of things at bishopsgate which i believe have the fastest lifts in europe um which can reach up to 10 was it 10 seconds per floor something like that it was was ridiculous anyway once they're in the lift um companies have a bigger problem still which is that they need to avoid touching anything so they've they've heeded the warnings from china which released a report that demonstrated how an asymptomatic person who touched a lift button infected 70 other people in one building so they're trying to figure out ways to stop people from touching anything basically so in in places like korea and japan they've resorted to cocktail sticks and prodders so you can touch the 
buttons without having to touch them actually with your finger. In other places that have kind of more modern tablets that are outside of the, the lifts themselves that you have to kind of summon and tell them which lift you want to go to, which floor you want to go to, pardon, before you get in, they have someone like standing outside doing it for you. So it's kind of like an old school 1920s lift operator situation where you have to rely on someone to tell you where you have to go. So some, some lifts though um, can even be summoned by an app on your phone. So we are seeing some innovation. I, I love the idea that you would enter your lobby and then people would be there to kind of slow you down just so it was more, it worked out more efficiently or it worked out quicker. I can just imagine someone being like, oh, have you checked out the file? And, and people just popping up giving you kind of nonsense stuff. So, so in this hypothetical situation, I've dodged all the people that are giving me weird information to try and delay me as I get into my lobby. I've got my cocktail stick and I've, I've prodded floor... 17 and i've held my breath and there's a perspex screen between me and the person next to me so i think that i've escaped any infection risk getting up to my office now i step into my office and i'm faced with a whole host of new dangers what's going to <laughs> trouble me there yeah, if you thought that you were safe, you'd be wrong. So this this kind of leads me to the second article, uh, which is about the, the, you know, the rank air, the horrible situation that we have there. So you reach your floor um, and you open the doors and you're hit with basically what is a very high percentage of recycled air, which is gross in many different ways, but specifically for coronavirus is a very, very bad thing. So researchers in our second story have demonstrated how aerosols, which are microscopic droplets that we breathe out, um, can move through a typically well-ventilated ventilated office and have an increase of 80% likelihood of people kind of being exposed to them. So you can just inhale whatever is in the lungs of your colleagues, which is very, very bad news, as you can imagine, for a coronavirus, because that's how you can get it. Um, so obviously, the, the World Health Organization have long said that the primary form of coronavirus transmission comes from respiratory droplets, which are small particles of fluid that are larger than aerosols that pass through direct or close contact. So touching a button, and then licking your finger, for example, would be a bad, a bad thing to do. Matt Reynolds is looking shocked. Uh, this is not something you should do, but I'm sure people probably do do it because, you know, you forget, whatever. Um, anyways, but after, after a few months of pressure from experts, including a letter signed by 239 scientists who has acknowledged that the indoor airborne transmission of the coronavirus may be possible. So this, this is the scenario that we're facing at the moment, where you've got a lot of buildings who have windows, uh, you're supposed to have a percentage of, of fresh air, but a lot of people don't open those windows. And so you're relying on an indoor kind of uh, recycled air system that kind of pumps old air into new air and mixes it together in a sort of really horrible way. So one person um, that we spoke to described it as a cordial drink which is pollutants that are generated by workers are mixed with filtered air and constantly stirred to keep it at an acceptable overall proportion. And the quality of this depends on the volume of outdoor air that you allow in and the filtration system's quality. In a modern office, the air changes approximately once every hour. But unless you're in a cellular office separated in sort of terms of ventilation from other workers, you are breathing the same air as them. And I think it's important to say that this is the same reason why you're more likely to get a cold in an open plan office because you're so close to your colleagues. You're, you're literally breathing their air. We, when we were in the office, were breathing each other's air. Just want to leave that there. It's gross. 
Yeah, you sort of miss it, don't you? Um, <laughs> but when we're in this type of scenario, um, this to take the sort of like lift example that you had earlier of the drastic measure of putting down a perspex divider in between sort of people standing in the lift, can that sort of approach help or be useful in um, in an office environment? So is there a difference in the sort of air you breathe in an open plan office compared to uh, one with cubicles and more dividers between staff? Yeah, it's sort of like a pick your own nightmare, right? So you've got two different scenarios. If you're in cubicles, uh, the air could could stagnate in certain areas. So you might turn around a corner, you get hit by an old bit of air, <laughs> which is which sounds creepy and horrible. Um, but you have pockets of basically stagnant air. So if you imagine a cubicle that's connected to a thoroughfare, aerosols will diffuse out. Whoever's walking past will get a blast, basically. So you could have a meeting room or you could have a cubicle that is bustling with aerosols waiting to greet the next unwitting visitor. However, open, open plan offices are possibly even worse because what you're looking at is basically a cloud of aerosols that are above everyone's head. Uh, so you, you, when, when offices have been readapted for, for open plan, they got rid of cubicles and they, they gained space. So basically everyone's crammed together. You've got very little space um, individually as workers. And that includes uh, spaces in meeting rooms, breakout spaces and kitchenettes. And while these, um, these spaces have been proven to use less energy, they can become breeding grounds for infection so in the desk areas that's particularly potent because they're so densely packed cubicles are small um, but in an open plan office desk space is kind of on average a lot smaller so you're going to be in a situation where wherever you stand you're gonna you're gonna be breathing that same air so at least in a cubicle office you might be able to dodge it i suppose <laughs> if, you're, if you're around the back or like if you if you don't um, meet with anyone else you make sure no one comes into your cubicle whereas in an open plan office which is the majority of, of offices now you can't so yeah open your windows guys that's the the advice here yeah solid advice um <laughs> we're we're keen to hear from anybody who's going back to the offices or sort of have different setups in place um are the lifts in your building working are you being forced to make up to walk up the stairs um let us know podcast at wired.co.uk for our second story this week i've been taking a, a murky trip into the deeply troubling world of deep fake pornography um deep fakes first emerged in 2018 from reddit and and uh, that some of their initial um creation was around uh pornographic material but over the last couple of years and particularly over the last few months the videos which are all um created with artificial intelligence and deep learning um to add in people's faces onto uh different bodies or put place them in different scenarios are breaking through into the mainstream so uh, based on uh analysts and research and statistical uh, sort of um, interpretations of the amount of deepfakes that are going online. Um, we've been speaking to some people behind the, these statistics and over the last few months uh, there has been an increase in the illicit deepfake videos featuring female celebrities, actresses, music musicians appearing on some of the world's biggest pornography sites every month. So figures from deepfake detection companies Sensity show that um, over the 
last few months, last three or four months uh, individually, more than a thousand uh, new deepfake pornography videos are being uploaded to these sites every month. And just to point out, these videos are all uh, non-consensual. They are abusive to uh, the women that are featured in them. They are forms of harassment. They are essentially really sort of horrible, grubby things. Um, And they're basically growing in popularity. So uh, on a couple of uh, sites, so two of the biggest sites in the world, uh, which are X videos and XNXX, uh, hard to pronounce, but um, they are two of the biggest uh, pornographic websites in the world. Um, the only one that sort of like separates them two is Pornhub, which we don't have statistics for, but of these two uh, big websites, they are hosting hundreds uh, of these deepfake pornographic videos um, and they are covering the types of really big, well-known celebrities. So uh, one video which um, features, um, and that maybe isn't the correct word, uh, Emma Watson's face has been viewed more than 23 million times and other videos include Natalie Port. Billie Eilish, Taylor Swift, uh, and several different um, Indian actresses. Um, Many of these celebrities have been continuously targeted by deepfakes since uh, they emerged in 2018, um, and basically nothing is really being done about them. Um, And these uh, videos are being uploaded to some of the sites that have comparisons uh, traffic-wise compared to like Amazon, Reddit, Wikipedia, huge amounts of visitors coming every month, uh, hundreds of million views altogether. Surely porn sites must have noticed how popular these videos are. And I'm not really sure how how one would determine which is the most popular porn video. But it seems like, you know, millions of hits is, is something you'd notice, right? So uh, deepfakes aren't exactly new. They knew they were coming. Have they done anything about it? Have they tried to stop this from happening? So this is, yeah, this is one area where there's not a lot really being done. Um, there's been a lot of talk of like uh, deep fakes and political sort of ramifications of, of fake news and issues like this. But um, now that we're seeing um, these um, these deep fake pornographic videos breaking out from some of the communities and some of the uh, websites that host them and create them in the first place, because there are specific sites uh, that exist online which just include deep fake pornographic videos. Uh, now that they're coming into the mainstream, um, we're we're not seeing much action from the pornographic websites. So uh, Sensity, the company that um, are tracking a lot of this, um, their CEO told me that um, the attitude of the websites is that they they don't really consider it a problem. They said that they've tried to reach out and speak to some of these sites uh, and have not really heard much back from them or there's no real incentive for them to sort of take this thing offline because um, there are no laws around this saying this is illegal specifically. Um, And the videos that we're sort of seeing creep into the mainstream sites are largely driven by uh, communities that are doing this. So as I mentioned, there are a few sites that specifically exist for deepfake pornography pornographic videos. Um, so Sensity's analysis said that last year, the top four of these specific sites had 140 million views just on these individual videos. And now that, as I say, we're seeing these videos sort of move more onto uh, some mainstream pornographic websites, they're racking up uh, millions of views themselves. And essentially, they're being uploaded to these sites to be watched, they're being uploaded um, to help um, either the creators that are making them uh, in terms of like their own publicity, or also just help to make the um, 
the the porn companies that are hosting these they contribute to their they contribute to their finances that all these videos like all the videos on um on their websites uh include adverts around them if people watch them there there'll be ad impressions there'll be revenue that comes from these um so the companies are profiting from having these on their sites they are i think it should be stated they're still a very small number of the amount of videos that are on any sort of pornographic website we're talking like tiny amounts of percentages but um they, they are increasing generally um so we try to sort of like basically get the porn companies to respond to this and say uh say what they're doing how are they handling these um it was basically impossible to get in touch with uh x video and xnxx uh, which are both owned by the same company um so we tried to reach out through them through multiple different different places but couldn't really get uh in touch with anybody that wanted to respond to this uh one of the sort of advertising companies that sort of leads to this said that they um they they don't they're not responsible for exit for for these websites even though um they they contribute adverts to this uh, and essentially the companies themselves are a little bit opaque uh one company uh x hamster which is one of the biggest porn websites as well in the world um did get back to us they said that the company doesn't have a specific policy for deepfakes but they treat it like any other non-consensual content um and when we sent them a list of deepfakes that were sort of on their website um which were very explicitly sort of tagged as deepfakes they even had deepfake in the sort of like video name um the company said that they're gonna look at those and, and take them through their moderation process but ultimately um they said they'll take these these sort of types of videos down but these ones were clearly on their site and hadn't had anything done through them for quite a while so um we don't really know the full scale of this but essentially it's out there it's a problem and um the companies seemingly don't have don't, are not doing too much about it um yeah. it seems quite shocking because as you say it shouldn't be that hard for these companies to get on top of it because I'm pretty sure most people know that Taylor Swift's not doing, uh, you know, porn videos or, you know, whoever, Billie Eilish. So as soon as you see any video that features someone that is high profile and, and you know, in that kind of situation, well, that seems quite an easy case to kind of get rid of them. I suppose an even more difficult and pernicious problem is that if these sites are a little bit like YouTube in which anyone can upload something, you may well have people that are not famous, but perhaps it's a, uh, you know, a non-consensual pornography situation where they've taken someone's face that I don't know they don't like or you know you know whatever it's some kind of abusive um relationship so it feels like there's perhaps even another another problem of deep face that might be a little bit harder to identify because they're not um a celebrity or someone that's kind of obvious that shouldn't be there with that in mind what are companies doing have they said look we know this is a problem we're stepping up and we we try to do something and what what are their options do you know is it is it a case of they wait until Billie Eilish's lawyers get onto them and they they move or are they being proactive yeah, this is this is a really good point. And one company I didn't really mention there, um, Pornhub, um, which is the second biggest site. Um, while our our reporting uh, on this issue didn't focus on Pornhub too much because there wasn't uh, easily available statistics, it is something that Pornhub has uh, grappled with in the past. So uh, as back as twenty as far back as twenty eighteen, when deepfakes were first sort of invented and came into public consciousness, um, the first videos uh, started to be uploaded to um, Pornhub, and, and they said at that time that they were going to ban them. Um, sort of subsequent reporting has shown that um, they probably haven't done a great job, and there's more that they could do. Um, so from uh, one of its most recent reviews of sort of like. Uh, 
a year in the life of Pornhub, for instance, um, it was pointed out that um, Pornhub said that there was a lot of celebrity content that was performing well on its on its website. And um, as you say, Matt, these celebrities are not creating consensual porn videos. Um, so anything that is sort of tagged and, and celebrity on there is either likely to be a deep fake or something that may not be consensual or something completely different. Um, and it really is sort of like the start of the, the tip of the iceberg, to be honest, because as you say, as you pointed out, Matt, that this is something that is going to affect more people as the technology matures and becomes easier. So we've seen in recent months and and over even over the last few weeks that uh, the technology behind deep fakes is becoming a lot more accessible to a lot more people. So uh, with less technical knowledge than you needed two years ago, you can go out and find out how to create these types of things. Um, and there have already started to be some cases where people who aren't um, celebrities are being targeted by these type of videos. Uh, and a lot of the people that I spoke to around uh, this issue have said that that's the, the next that's the next thing. That's what's looming. People are going to be creating a lot more of these deep fakes for uh, people that they uh, maybe sort of want to be revengeful against or want to uh, want to spite in these sorts of scenarios. And and the legal protections of these sorts of things aren't really there at the moment. So uh, on the on the legal side of things, people that I spoke to said um, there are there are no specific deep fake laws around pornography. A couple of uh, states in the US have created deep fake laws that says that you can't create them around uh, political issues, but they've ignored the issue that's already out there at the moment. They've ignored that this technology is having an impact on people's lives. Um, already um, and the legal mechanisms that are in place at the moment mostly are through other channels so you could um, you could challenge some of these uh, deep fakes on uh, copyright issues on uh, defamation issues on human rights laws but essentially these are all quite they all have their own caveats and make them a little bit harder to sort of implement and challenge on that respect so um, there's no real easy way to do this and I think as we do go into a world where the technology becomes cheaper and easier um, there needs to be something done about that and the right time to do it is well, I mean it was two years ago but um, with nothing happening then um, we need to be sort of having these sorts of discussions now and um, before these issues sort of go into other domains and other areas as well um, so one of the people that I was speaking to about this was saying that um, yes it's a, it's a huge problem at the moment but uh, this is going to extend into other civil, li civil, civil liberties issues and cause more uh, problems going forward so it's probably the time that something needs to be done about this. For our third story this week, Matt, something completely different. Uh, we are going to Switzerland. That's right. So this is yeah yeah this is this is something from from a you know a very kind of real issue that's happening right now and and is a you know I, I guess you know very much mediated by modern technology. I'm looking at something that is very very long scale and something we're going to be contending with for the next uh, probably few hundred years. Hopefully that's not the case for for deep fake. So this story is about a slightly harebrained scheme to stop one of the Alps' biggest glaciers from melting into nothing. So this is the Mortarach Glacier in the Swiss Alps and it is 2.7 kilometres shorter than it was in 1860. I mean that's quite hard to visualise. So what that actually means is that at its current pace of shrinking, it's shrinking by about 40 metres every year and that means that it could be gone completely by the year 2100. But a pair of glaciologists has an idea to save it from extinction and it 
involves blasting this glacier with lots and lots and lots of fake snow. I feel like I'm learning so much because I didn't know that there was such a thing as a glaciologist, which is is brilliant. It really strikes my fancy. So obviously it's really depressing that we're not going to have any more glaciers, that we've been so reckless, that global warming has got us to the point where we're going to blast things with fake snow. But will it, will it actually work if they do that? Theoretically, yes. So the way that glaciers work is uh, they're kind of created through a steady cell, uh, cycle of, you know, what they do, they kind of melt at the bottom while fresh snow accumulates on top and that kind of compresses uh, all the snow. And, it, you know, it's like it, it's constantly refreshing, if you like, the ice that's within the, the within the glacier. Now, the problem is and why they get smaller is that as temperatures rise and uh, more precipitation uh, comes down. So, you know, rain instead of snow, there's much more melting and there's much less fresh snow. And that causes glaciers to retreat. So when it comes to this particular glacier, a local Swiss glaciologist called Felix Keller thought, well, if you cover the glacier's most melt-prone sections with a layer of artificial snow during the summer months, what you'd end up doing is reflecting the sunlight and slowing down the melting. So you're basically keeping the, the glacier frozen for longer. And it's not a complete shot in the dark. It makes sense, really glaciers hang around longer in places where there is more snow. So Keller and another glaciologist called Hans Olemans uh, were inspired by a successful effort to slow down the melting of a nearby glacier called Diavolesafern, which is the only time I'm going to say that, and that probably was very bad. And what they used to slow down this melting was a kind of series of white fleece blankets. It sounds kind of weird that you would actually put a blanket on a glacier, but essentially what you're trying to do is to um, reflect that sunlight and make sure it's not really it doesn't end up um, you know melting the snow. The problem is when snow melts, it can kind of form pools of water that that then warm up and they kind of drip through. And and what you really you want to keep snow white and it's frozen and form rather than letting it turn to water which will heat up much quicker than the snow will so this with this other glacier they used white white fleece blankets to cover the ice in summer and it actually resulted in the glacier thickening by almost 10 meters in a decade so we know if we keep that snow safe these glaciers do get thicker so if they've, if they've already had success with that um why are they not just sticking blankets on on the on the rest of the glaciers Right. Yeah, well, the problem is, is as much as I would love to see a huge, lovely wooden blanket that would be really, really fun to, uh, I don't know, slide down or, I don't know, what, 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 you know, lie, you know, wrap yourself up in a giant blanket. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, Mortarach is much too big to cover with fleeces. So instead, uh, these glaciologists that I've been talking about, they used a computer model to try and work out, well, if we did want to stop it melting, what would we actually do to make a difference? And what they did is they looked at a bunch of weather data um, from the local area and kind of combined that with an ice flow model so they were saying well if it snowed this amount uh, over autumn or if it snowed this amount in winter what what would that cause in terms of melting uh, later down the line a year down the line and what they found is that just a few centimeters of fresh snow covering a, 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 a patch that's about under one square kilometer right at the top of the ice mass uh, the ice mass during warm months would be enough, enough to stall the effects of melting within 10 to 15 years and these calculations suggested that the snout of the glacier you know the very end of it could grow back by 800 
metres in two decades. Now, what we know is that what models, especially on a local level, uh, suggest is not always exactly what happens when you actually go and uh, you know, try it in real life. So these um, you know, two glaciologists, Keller and Olemans, they ran a pilot scheme in which they sprayed in two rounds two and a half metre deep coat of artificial snow on a 200 square metre patch at the foot of that very hard to pronounce glacier, Diavolesophon. It sounds a bit like a drug or something, like antibiotic, but, you know, we'll go for it. And, uh, and, and really, this test actually had some fantastic results. So it lasted into the autumn uh, of 2017. And not only was further melting averted, but in some areas, the ice even grew. So we've got this sense that actually, yeah, covering with fake snow or, you know, artificially generated snow does seem to have an effect on melting. Can I ask about the logistics of this? Because I love, love logistics <laughs> side of things. So how did they get up? to the top of the glacier to then put all of this snow down did they have to use um a makeshift lift did they use a, a very large pipe what did they do to get the snow up there in the first place yeah so i think with this the glacier that they were talking about they did this trial on uh, uh, and part of the reason why switzerland is so you're concerned about this is because it's all about its you know skiing industry and it wants to keep um uh you know it's it, you know it's mountains full of snow so i think that actually there are you know tramways and there are cable cars and stuff so actually the infrastructure of these mountains is is surprisingly good for channeling water up there and getting that pumped up there now when it comes to the you know Monterach uh glacier things are a little bit more difficult so if you've ever been to a ski resort you'll know that loads of snow is generated by these what you know what are called snow lances and they look like you know very long sticks that have got kind of um spray nozzles at the end of them or kind of you know, at the top quarter or so of this uh of this pipe and, and basically what they're doing is they're spraying water in the air and they're letting it while it's the right temperature turn to snow when it comes down so maybe it's a little bit you know unfair to call it fake snow it's almost like ice made in the freezer is kind of fake ice right it's 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 snow that wouldn't be there unless we were putting the water into the air but it is real snow it's not milton keys snow dome or you know fake whatever um the problem is is that these snow lances wouldn't work with a glacier because as the glacier is obviously moving, as it slid slowly downhill, what it would do is it would wrench these pipes out of position. And what you don't want to do is end up putting all this infrastructure under the ground where you've got a glacier that's moving, you know, however many metres it moves a year. That's a really bad idea, right? Um, you know, it's fine to do that stuff in a, a fixed situation, but you can't do it when things are moving. So these two researchers sorted out a bit of a cunning solution. So they worked out that if you had a system of free-hanging snow cables, and almost think of them a bit like, um, you know, the electric cables that work with tram lines that kind of hang above, uh, you know, a railway or something like that. They're a little bit like that. So if you set them in a crisscross pattern across the width of the glacier and working a bit like a sprinkler, what you'd do is you'd spray the, uh, you know, the snow would kind of, you know, come down from above. And as the glacier slides slides underneath it towards the valley you'd end up coating um you know more than just that bit of the glacier that is directly underneath it because obviously it's it's moving underneath it your one benefit of this you know snow generating system is it could use gravity uh to from lakes further up the mountain to feed it and actually that's being developed right now so it's all about this yes can we spray snow from above rather than having to plug all this infrastructure under the ground to get to them yeah, it sounds like they've come up with a bit of a solution, but is is it all as sort of like positive and um, and rosy and glacier saving as uh, as it sounds? Yeah, I'm I'm not celebrating just yet. 
obviously this is just one glacier and it's just one project and so basically Keller and Allman so their idea is one of a 2.1 million pound grant from the Swiss Agency for Innovation which will see a larger trial take place over 30 months and ultimately these glaciologists want to you know bring the technology to Latin America and the Himalayas where actually you know large numbers of people rely on glacier water for you know fresh water drinking water irrigation all of that stuff so actually there's much more at stake than just you know natural beauty and ski industries these are really vital sources of fresh water really not everyone is so convinced that this approach makes sense so daniel farinotti who's a glaciologist at the swiss federal institute of technology in zurich says that while the method has some potential to ease melt on a very local level that saving the entire glacier is a completely different undertaking because there's enormous challenges in terms of scalability and there's really really un- unreasonable costs um in you know in in other countries in the world and it, it's great saying okay we can save this bit of one swiss glacier but what does that really do on a global level apart from slow the um you know slow them out in one area switzerland is actually a really interesting example because it, it warms and it's a bit more vulnerable to climate change more than any other part of the world, which is why it's a particular issue there. Other people say that even getting enough water to make this artificial snow will be a problem. And the problem is, is the water is heated in the warm months when obviously you've got the sun, sunlight that you need to reflect. But at that point, it's not really cold enough to produce the snow. So that by the time it is cold enough to produce the snow, a lot of that water is locked up as ice and they can't access it in an easy way. And I think finally the problem is, and this goes back to kind of Farinotta's point, I think, is that perhaps this is the wrong approach to be thinking about glaciers. Why are we trying to load more technology onto glaciers and saying, well, we've got these problems, we can try and fix it by doing this and this, rather than tackling the core of the problem, which is climate change. And this is perhaps an argument you see with carbon capture and storage. People say, great, that allows us to keep burning carbon, uh, keep burning fossil fuels, because we can get around this because we can store the carbon and we can fix that problem. And other people say, well, that that means it's okay to keep extracting and keep keep producing this carbon and similarly you might say well if we think we can fix the glacier problem but by just loading more infrastructure and technology around them perhaps that de-incentivizes us to actually avert the effects of climate change and obviously there are lots of other effects of climate change that aren't just um, glaciers shrinking so some people actually have a kind of ideological opposition to this view and actually the only way we can really save glaciers is by slashing emissions and minimising temperature increases and that is going to involve a lot more than you know some fancy uh, snow guns above a Swiss glacier. Yeah it does in some respects while it sounds like it's quite promising for sort of helping some glaciers it does seem a little bit of a uh, maybe a band-aid on the bigger issue of the climate change that's happening and the emergency that the world is sort of facing um going forward in in, in coming years and probably as you say it is it is useful to think of it in the bigger context and um how it is seen as one project when there's a lot more that else that needs to be done as well and just before we go this week there's time for some feedback uh, our inbox was bulging this week uh, with plenty of different emails on different subjects from different weeks people catching up on some of the older podcasts and, and, and letting us know their thoughts on them as well uh, Matt Reynolds uh, you can start us off 
Yeah, that's right. So in a previous podcast, uh, Vicky Turk talked about the resurgence of QR codes in the COVID era. And Thomas wrote in to talk about some advice that he got in the early days. So he was told, do not just scan a QR code that you find in the wild. You don't know who put it there and what it is programmed to do. And Thomas basically, you know, raises the fear. Well, if I just sit down and scan a code that is, you know, on a restaurant desk, how do I know that someone hasn't swapped this out? And actually they're trying to send me somewhere, um, uh, you know, nefarious. And, you know, and he said, I still feel a little cautious scanning QR codes, even in a restaurant, being super paranoid. How hard would it be for someone to swap out a few of the QR codes uh, on a table with their own? I looked this up a little bit, you know, I think, Thomas, you might be very wise indeed. So I asked our esteemed security correspondent, Matt Burgess, whether this was a thing, whether we should be worried about QR codes or not. And he directed me to a scam making the rounds in the Netherlands, or it was last year at least. And how it worked is that someone would approach you in the car park and say, oh, none of these um, parking meters take cash. Uh, if I give you five euros, will you pay for the parking just by scanning this QR code with your banking app? And of course, what that actually did is you scan the QR code um, and they clear out your banking account. So I would certainly, um, I didn't even know that uh, bank accounts had QR code scanners. So maybe that's me completely out of touch. I would be super wary if you're talking about, um, you know, maybe any anything that's connected to your, you know, a certain profile or a certain account. Maybe be, you know, maybe some applications you should be a little bit more wary than others. But Thomas, you raise an, you know, a really really good point that the QR code is a route to some of our core vulnerabilities. So, uh, you know, it's not all rosy and hands-free menu choosing. There are dangers out there too. So we've been warned. I couldn't have said it better myself, Matt. Um, our second email came from Jerome this week, uh, writing from Belgium. Uh, they say, hello to the Wire podcast team and a special hello to Matt Burgess, whose interventions I really appreciate, uh, but whom this email is not really uh, specifically addressed. However, I'm going to take it on anyway. Um, uh, so Jerome was writing in about uh, the uh, one of the segments from our sort of like news roundup of the week um, when Donald Trump uh, raised an issue with um, the pressure of showers and him washing his hair. Um, so Jerome writes uh, to say that uh, you mentioned a limit of 9.5 litres of water per minute uh, when checking up one of his uh, products, um, which said that it was super green in quotation marks. Uh, that had a flow, a nominal flow of 14 litres per minute and was a super saver mode of 11 litres per minute uh, and Jerome said uh, could the lower US limit be too low uh, does Donald Trump have a point um, so I tried to check this out and there is a lot of information about water flows through shower heads online um, it's not particularly easy to find guidance on them um, so in the US um, they do have limits and legal limits on them and different states in different places have uh, sort of gone below some have gone further than some of the legal limits in terms of like reducing the amount of water flow um, the UK government, it doesn't seem that the UK has a really specific law focused around this, but um, we do have sort of in environmental and planning laws for new houses, uh, sort of water efficiency targets for different homes, uh, which is 125 litres of uh, water use per person per day um, for new efficient homes. Um, and some of the UK government's buying standards. So if the if various government departments are buying taps or showers or stuff like that um, for showers, their guidance says that they should be looking at um, six liters of water per minute, which is 
way lower than the US. So basically this varies in different places, uh, but the general sort of feedback to uh, the statements from Trump were actually sort of increasing the amount of water used by the levels that he were talking about would be very bad for the environment and water safety generally. Matt Reynolds, you've got Can I just say that I love that Jerome included the model of his shower uh, tap that he was buying and I, I you know what I would love to see a picture of the bathroom refit because it's a very sleek chrome number and um, you know I would be really interested by the other fixtures and fittings because I just I'd love to see the matching tap because it is, it is I would encourage everyone to look up the Hansgrow Ecostat 1001 CL because that is a it's a good looking shower shower fitting I would say other showers are obviously available um, podcast at wired.com co.uk natasha our final email this week yeah so our final email is from tom who says he was catching up on the podcast and i just listened to amit's story about the eat out to help out scheme which we did a few weeks ago uh, to support the uk's food and hospitality industry he wanted to share an observation about something that's going on in poland Uh, so on august the 1st he says the polish government launched a one-off tourist voucher worth about a hundred pounds which can be used to pay for hotels or other tourist services in various tourist facilities around the country so for budget reasons the government said it wasn't going to give it out to everyone it was decided that it could only be used by families with children under the ages of 18 so you need to subscribe for the voucher of one of these um to to use this on the government website and you receive a voucher number together with a verification pin Anyways, you can imagine people were taking advantage of that. A whole black market emerged um, and people were selling these vouchers at an average of 60 to 80 percent of face value. Um, He says the Polish are known for their entrepreneurship. Smiley face. He is Polish, by the way, so um, I guess he would know. The government banned this after a few weeks. Complete disaster because it said that it was a horrible, illegal way of people making money on state benefits. And the activity seems to have stopped now. He says, I'm thinking if the government's intention is to really support the hospitality industry, wouldn't it be better to allow it in some way? (laughs) In that way, it's reasonable to assume that more vouchers would actually be redeemed and more money would eventually flow into the businesses. Unless it's not really about supporting the economy and it's all about getting more votes by giving away state benefits to people. I wonder if you guys might have similar observations about any of the support schemes in the UK or any other countries. You know what, Tom, you're bang on the money. Of course, it's all about votes. (laughs) But but it's also... um, it's different techniques, right, of trying to stimulate the economy. And you're right. I mean, there's lots of countries that have opted to um, give different kinds of incentives, um, just like Poland. Japan has been offering incentives to tourists coming in. Uh, in the UK, the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, obviously, that's ending this week or it ended well, yesterday, I suppose it's now Thursday where we're recording. But um, it's it's something that we don't have the figures on how, how well it's done. I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of feedback from ho- uh, hotels, restaurants and pubs saying that people have become very aggravated, that their staff have been, you know, faced with a lot of rude customers who don't understand the help out, uh, eat out to help out scheme. And they wanted a lot more money off. They didn't really get that it was up to £10. So there's been a bit of a disaster in that aspect. But there are other restaurants that have said it's been really great and they're going to continue doing it, even though it's not um, money that comes from the government's pockets. So I think it kind of, it's one of those annoying ones that kind of remains to be seen whether it was a good idea or not. At the time of it launching, everyone said it was a bad idea. There was no way um, that they could ever tell if it was going to make anyone any money or help the hospitality industry at all which was the government advice so it gives you an idea to how in the dark we are about this scheme but um but yeah i suppose in the coming weeks we'll figure out who did it best um the economy is at at its worst state in the uk for quite a number of years so uh i guess you know 
as if people carry on eating out to help out um without actually spending government money we might be in a better place in the months to come but there's just no way to know at this point so yeah your guess is as good as mine tom Yeah, it seems like there's been a lot of different incentives in different places around the world to try and get economies uh, restarted again where it's safe to do so. We've seen that UK. There's obviously this uh, example from Poland here. Um, If you've got any other examples of sort of how your country or where you are is trying to uh, restart the economy, get people out uh, doing things again, um, do let us know. Podcast at wire.co.uk. We always uh, enjoy reading your emails. Uh, But that's all we've got time for this week. Um, We'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.